Are you working on your author career, but struggling to get that first book published? Does the goal of being an author seem too lofty? Or thoughts of having multiple books and making a full-time living are as fantastical as living in Cinderella's castle? Welcome to Discovered Wordsmiths, a podcast where aspiring authors can be heard. Join Steven Schneider as he finds and talks to authors you may not know, but authors that have gotten their foot on the author career path. Hear what they've done to get there and where they want to go now. Settle back. It's time for a bit of inspiration and advice. Come listen to today's I'm not sure why, but I brought a bunch of fairly serious books. I should have looked harder for more spring fun and sunshine. No, that sounds good. It's serious book month then. Uh, well, I think I've mentioned this before, but it's kind of book release season. So right. uh, there's all kinds of new stuff out. I'm barely scratching the surface. It's a good time to go to your local independent bookstore and shop around. Hint, hint, get everybody. Your, <laughs> yeah, get your get your summer books. Right. Yeah, so, so what do we got, Tom? Uh, well, let's see. I got some uh, I got some utopias. I got some poverty. Uh, I've got some dystopias, all kinds of stuff. I'm going to start this book down paperback called The Firekeeper's Daughter, uh, and it's YA, uh, not fantasy, realistic fiction about a teenage, upper teenage girl who's um, Native American and, and sort of gets pulled into an FBI investigation when they come into the reservation to, to investigate a murder. So um, very different for a YA book, uh, very tense and uh, just really well done. It's on the favorites list of of three different booksellers here. So nice. uh, if you like YA, but you don't necessarily always like a fantasy uh, or a, you know, John Green romance, this is something a little bit, a little bit different. Uh, the author is Angeline Booley and um, it, it got a lot of attention when it came out in hardcover. And now it is out in paperback. Okay. Um, also out in paperback uh, this week or a couple weeks is Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. She wrote Station Eleven, which a lot of people read uh, and liked, which was, um, you know, a apocalypse kind of the world has collapsed uh, kind of novel. This is a little different. She's she's way more literary than your average sci-fi author which sometimes works and I think sometimes doesn't. Uh, it sort of depends on the audience. Uh, Station Eleven sort of fell in between where people who love hard sci-fi were like, oh, there's so many holes in this. And people who like literary fiction were like, the characters are great, but too much science fiction. So she's sort of she's sort of her own brand, which is is great if you can pull it off because she gets, she gets a lot of attention and awards for her books, but they do sort of fall uh, in between. Case in point, Sea of Tranquility uh, follows three or four different characters from totally different time periods who all have a similar experience uh, with this mysterious thing happening in the Canadian woods. Wow, um, okay. So it's kind of Cloud Atlasy. If you ever read David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, um, very literary such. Uh, two other dystopian novels that uh, maybe we shouldn't have done this on a Monday because I sold out of them over the weekend. So I don't have. That's yeah, awesome. which is good. I don't have covers to show you, but they're two of my favorite authors and they have brand new books. So I want to make sure I bring it up. One is The Ferryman by Justin Cronin. Justin Cronin wrote uh, one of my favorite sci-fi fantasy 
it's really fantasy trilogies of all time uh called the passage did you ever read it no not familiar they sci-fi network made a one season tv show out of like first hundred pages of the first book of the trilogy and then get canceled <laughs> which is too bad because they did a pretty good job on it but i i hand sell the passage all day long uh, justin cronin went to the iowa writers workshop he was a literary fiction guy he wrote a couple very beautiful lyric novels that didn't sell and then his daughter who was like 10 was like why don't you write something people want to read dad and he's like she like just what? solved the marketing problem for authors somebody i know that <laughs> and she said and she said how about something about a girl that saves the world and the the passage starts in our time period when the government is trying to make super soldiers goes horribly wrong and then it jumps forward a hundred years to the small community that is the only thing left of humanity in north america uh and in some ways it, a, a lot of people compare it to the stand uh oddly to me it felt like the fellowship of the ring because this small group of people um has to go on a mission to find other people and so it's this you know ragtag group going across wild dangerous lands uh but oh man great great book uh great series his new book called the ferryman is also dystopian but it's set on an island sometime after everything has collapsed and um it's one of those more philip k dick kind ones where people have like a health sensor embedded in them and when it falls below 10 percent, you are taken to the ferryman and removed from the island oh, uh okay. and it it's one of those things where you know things are revealed to not quite be as they seem uh so and it's been like 10 years since he wrote a book he had he had an illness or or something uh so people have been really excited for for this book so, so, so do they ferryman. add insult to injury and make them give the ferryman coins uh i don't know no but uh but yeah there's more going on than <laughs> than originally meets the eye uh the other dystopian novel which i can barely call dystopian because it's so delightful is the new tj clune so he wrote the house of the cerulean sea which um is another of my all-time favorite books it's uh as a bookseller when summer comes we have lots of tourists and over and over and over they say I want something really well written, but not sad. I'm like, well, that, that's not how it works, <laughs> right? The really beautiful literature is almost always sad. House on the Cerulean Sea is not. It's delightful. It's fun. It's beautifully written. The characters are great. So I just sell that sucker all day long. His new book uh, is called In the Lives of Puppets. And uh, my one sentence review of that book is, it is the best Pixar movie you've ever read. Oh, nice. That's so, a great, great line. Cannot wait to uh, sell this book to people. It It's so visual. I totally see it as a Pixar movie in my head. It starts in this huge empty forest where a teenage boy lives with his father and two sidekick robots. And his job, he, he goes every day to the salvage yard and looks for more parts where he can robots back together um not to be a spoiler because it's pretty obvious but he turns out to be the last human and oh, that wow. the 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 robots have taken over cl classic ai right the, 
that the AI is asked, how do we save the planet? And they're like, well, we just get rid of all the humans. <laughs> right. uh, and this is the perfect time for that book with everything with chat GPT and yeah. learning everything going on. Yep. So. Uh, but what's fun is he has made a society of robots that has worked pretty hard to to copy humans, even though they eliminated them. So, uh, but they don't quite get it right. So all the characters are hilarious and quirky. Uh, the sidekicks are a, uh, a vacuum robot <laughs> who likes to go around and vacuum things up and a nurse robot, except since there's no humans left, she hasn't really had a patient in 200 years. So, uh, and she's very, very crotchety and wants to drill everybody and sigh everybody open. That uh, definitely sounds like it's up my alley there. That's Oh my gosh. It's, it's just so much fun. It's great. Even, even when you kind of know where it's going. It it doesn't matter because he does character just so amazing. Character and dialogue so amazing. So that's called nice. In the Lives of the Puppets uh, by T.J. Klune. Uh, swerving to uh, nonfiction dystopia, uh, Greta Thunberg has a book out, uh, which previously she's had collections of speeches and such, but uh, but this is a a real. Um, I mean, she's the she's brought together. She's the editor, and she's brought together. Uh, hard science writers uh, to sort of give a overview of of where things are and where they're going. Nothing particularly new, but sort of pulling it all into one one place. Uh, it reminds me of a, a book we sold a few years ago that I'm now blanking on the name. Um, Countdown, I think it was called, but um, a Drawdown called Drawdown, which was each article was um, something that causes greenhouse gases and how we could get rid of it now without future technology. And it was pretty surprising. A lot of things, you know, but it's pretty surprising too, that like three of the top five things were food. Like the Amazon were cutting down to feed, to grow corn, to feed cows because we like beef uh, and food waste and how food waste thrown into landfills does not compost all that stuff and like on the one hand we're like oh humans suck but on the other hand it's like here's things that we could be doing right. and some of them we are doing yeah, um, I, I i remember seeing a report about that that like 50 percent of all of our emissions problems is because of food production that yes yeah. growing and transporting and packaging yeah. and waste and yeah and another big one is cars which we seem to actually be doing something about so that's hopeful well, I know uh, an uncle who that would be his beach read. Uh, yeah, website. that would be. But the problem is, he probably wouldn't go to the beach. He'd just read it at home. <laughs> right. Uh, and this is my kind of beach read, which is called Poverty by America. Um, Sounds light and fun. Yeah. Well, it's. Um, I don't read a lot of nonfiction, and most of it, I feel like, oh, that could have been a New Yorker article, or that could have been an Atlantic article. Uh, but I read Matthew Desmond's last book, which was called Evicted, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And it was about who gets kicked out of housing and why. Uh, and he spent time with low income people who get evicted and also with landlords. And it was very well done. Uh, this is a broader look by him at at poverty and why the poverty level is the same as it was 40 years ago and who that benefits and and why. And um, it's uh it's designed to make you feel bad uh, <laughs> well that's i like to blame talk about i like to blame everything on the rich uh because it's, 
because it's easy to do. But this this book is a little bit more uh, truthful than that. The fact that uh, just like with climate, like if we want to fix things, people at every level have to sort of give up a little bit of what they what they have. Uh, yeah. um, that's, that's a whole discussion. <laughs> that that said, it's still mostly the rich, still mostly the rich people's fault. Uh, and then we'll we'll round out the nonfiction with uh, something a little bit uh, a little bit happier, which is Simon Winchester. Have you ever read Simon Winchester? No. Oh wait, Kurt, he, I think I've talked to him about our friend has read him. Talked to him. Yeah. He's he's like Eric Larson, or he he writes about specific things in history and then about the broader context. But he's just a great writer. It's like reading a magazine article. It really it's it's really interesting. He wrote The Professor and the Madman, which was about writing the Oxford English Dictionary. He wrote Krakatoa, which was about the giant volcano eruption that, you know, was uh, affected the whole planet. Uh, he's he's done so many different things. Um, and this is a more more of an overview uh, where he's sort of um, talking about the Internet and how it how it works and going backwards to, you know, the advent of books themselves and how knowledge has been collected and and uh, transmitted, but uh, he's one of those people that it could be about, you know, paper clips and you would read it anyway because he's great, entertaining uh, history writer. If you've never read him, I recommend him highly. If you've read Eric Larson, who wrote *Devil in the White City* and that kind of thing, uh, and like that kind of nonfiction, or David Grant, where you get. Uh, just a really good story telling uh, Simon Winchester's view. And this is called Knowing What We Know. Uh, last two. I'm going to butcher this name, but it's Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. And this is called Chain Gang All-Stars. It's a novel that just came out. It's getting huge reviews. Uh, and it is set in the near future uh, where... Um, there's basically like gladiator wars with prisoners from American prisoners from pr American prisons. And it's about two women who are fighting are participants in this and what happens to them. Um, so, you know, you can get your sentence reduced by fighting in these gladiator fights. Uh, obviously it's, you know, horrible uh, and intense and, and a comment on our, our current prison system, but uh, I haven't read it yet. But man, everybody is uh, really going nuts for it. You know so the nationality is... of the author? Um, pretty sure they're American, but uh, they, um, yeah, they're American uh, in terms of uh, sort of heritage. I I don't know, um, but the book is set in the American prison system so interesting and and i love the me and a buddy talk about that all the time how sci-fi really has a way of pointing out current society's issues and problems and getting away with it because they can put it on another world another society and stuff like that so it's interesting to use our society just in the future yeah i, I mean prime example was star trek who you know yep. when when you get the trolls saying, oh, this is so woke or whatever, it's like, did you watch the original Star Trek? I mean, yes. that's, you know, that's, they were, they were doing that way back. So, well, even the, uh, the Westerns, then, even before that, you know, they had 
political statements being made about what was going on at that time, you know, so people, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, science fiction has always been that way and should be. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, they're, they're the same things happening with Marvel movies. And it's like, did you never read any of those comic books? (laughs) Because the original comic books were pretty woke. (laughs) Themselves, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to finish up with a bright pink book uh, just to show that it's not all doom and gloom. This is Happy Place by Emily Henry. Uh, she just blew out of nowhere about six years ago uh, with a book called Beatreed, um, which all us booksellers laughed our heads off because that's just a, a phrase that we use all summer. It's like it's a perfect Beatreed or, or whatever. And uh, I think she sort of tricked all the booksellers into carrying it just by that book, by that title. That book was about uh, two writers who uh, rent summer cottages next to each other, and one's a real stuffy literary fiction, and the other writes romances, and they meet, and sparks fly, and, you know, whatever. Because she writes romance. Uh, But it's more like literary romance. She's come out with four books since then, and every single one of them has been a huge seller for us. They all follow the same formula of of you know enemies to lovers kind of thing this one's a little different it's backwards uh it's about uh a couple who have been together forever but have broken up but they haven't told their friends and they don't want to their friends are all getting together for this reunion and they don't want to make anyone feel bad so they agree to go together and pretend to still be together um obviously obviously they're going to realize that they were meant for each other all along but so, so uh, that would be a, but I don't want it to be sad book. Yes, this is a beach read, but this is not when people say I want really beautiful literature that is also not sad. That's not this. This is pretty good literature that's really entertaining while you're at the beach. This is it, a beach read. Like, T.J. Clune. Oh, I'm sorry. I was gonna say. I'm just gonna say like, T.J. Clune is something else. Okay, so this is kind of like the uh, equivalent of reading a Star Trek novel. Quick, easy read. Uh, that yes. you get through. This is like um, this is like uh, you know it's like a romantic comedy movie, right? So right. it's it's like Harry Met Sally or uh, you know anything like that. Um, okay, it, it's it's going to be very well drawn, recognizable characters clashing, and uh, you're going to be glad you read it. But it's not going to leave you sitting around thinking about the future of the world. Right. Uh, yeah, it's very rare to find someone who writes what I would think of as as beautiful literary fiction that is also fun. <laughs> and that's why I like T.J. Clune so much. He really, really nails it. Got it. Cool. All right. Well, great. That's a great list of books and people getting into the summer season here. It's close. Maybe- yeah, maybe next time I'll do a bunch of paperbacks because that's another thing they do in summer is they just front load the, the beach reads. Uh, and it is getting close for us in the book world uh january through may is really the downtime uh so we're all we're all more than ready for mother's day father's day graduation and then summer uh it's sort of and uh it's it's a a huge difference around here which is a fairly touristy town but uh, but anywhere uh just that sort of that's may is the kickoff for better times for booksellers All right, man. Cool. That's a great list of books. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you.
Thanks. We'll talk to you next Thanks. time. All right. See ya. Today on Discover Wordsmiths, I want to welcome Molly. Molly, good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great. <laughs> so I know we live fairly close by. So since you're an Ohioan, I have a question for you. How do you know it's springtime in Ohio? Oh, <laughs> no more snow. <laughs> no, the opposite. You get more snow than you did during the winter. Oh, my gosh. That's... I have snow right outside my Yes. That's oh Ohio. Welcome to Ohio. <laughs> when spring comes, Ohio is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So, Molly, we're going to talk about your books today. But before we do that, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, where you live, what you like to do outside of writing books? Okay. So I live in, in the suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, near Lake Erie. And I have been, I guess teaching. And the other thing that I love to do is dancing. I I love to do swing dancing and all kinds of contra dancing and all kinds of dancing. And it brings me a lot of joy. Where do you uh, go for dancing? That's all over the place. There's little venues and different like church basement, church basements. <laughs> and the one that's nearby is the community of saints in Cleveland Heights. And we just, uh, it's wonderful because the people are very down to earth and it's all group dancing and just, and then we have a little break in the middle where we socialize. And of course we have to eat <laughs> nibble. Nice. It's a, it, and it's just so good for your body, but it's also good releases any stress. You just you laugh and you enjoy each other. Nice. nice. And the swing dancing is a lot of it's mostly on the West side of Cleveland. I live on the East side, but we carpool over and it's, you, you don't have to be perfect. You just move to the music and nice. Good. Yeah. And so I, one of my earliest memories of me as a child, I would, I was like, I would be dancing around the house, holding my man, holding my notebook with my stories. <laughs> so I combined both things and teaching, I guess I was just a natural born teacher. I loved children so much. It's, it just, I think if I had to say something about teaching that is that when you have two choices, when something goes awry in the classroom, you could be very tough and say, this is the rules and this is, but I found that kindness and uh, is a huge part of my approach to teaching. I'll tell a quick story that I was, I taught third grade most of the time. Now I'm teaching just groups, little small groups, which I love too, but I was teaching third grade and we were studying the different states and the kids were doing all these parts of the project. And one of them was a to do a, a big poster and it had to have the name of the state and they had books and things to do write about in pictures and they had to put a cat we learned what a caption was so everybody was working on it my little boy comes up to my desk and he shows me his poster in progress and it was a it was a mess it was awful it was just scribbled all over he and so in that moment I had a choice I could have said oh my gosh that's a wreck. You have to start over. Oh my God, I can't believe blah, blah, blah. But I decided to go a different route. And what I said to him was, what you have here is a good start. But I think we could use another poster. Go get a new poster. And there was no crying. This is, I wasn't being mean. He grabbed the poster. I sketched out a few the letters on the name of the state. And I went and we put the pictures, lay them out. And I said, okay, glue down those pictures and tape over the thing tape over what I wrote, and then bring it back and let's see what we can else we can do. And he was happy as a clam. I didn't have a breakdown. He was excited about the project. 
and I feel like I didn't mess up. <laughs> nice, nice. And so, yeah, I, that's how I approach children all the time. I'm when they're, if you go from a positive approach, it's just tremendously more powerful. Nice. Okay. And we're going to talk about teaching and working with kids later because you've written some middle grade books. Let's talk about those. So you've got two books out right now. Tell us a little bit about those books. Okay. The main characters are... What are the titles? And I know you have them if you want to hold them up too. Yeah. So this is the title of the first book. And I wrote this book in front of my third grade class and they chapter by chapter, they listened. Um, But this book is called The Game, and it's The Game is where three main characters, three children, Lily, who's about 12, and then her brother, Jimmy. And I'm going to hold up the second book because there's a picture of them. Lily is, and this one's a little bit older, uh, Jimmy, her brother, and their next door neighbor, Jamal, who is their best friends. And in the first book, in The Game, they are, they're playing a game like Monopoly, and that they found in their father's start up children's museum and so they roll the dice and they pick a card and it said go to Otto's antiques and they said what <laughs> but they took their tokens they stuck them in their pockets and they took their bikes over to this antique store and Otto is a main is another character but he sends them down the basement and they open up a they open up this guidebook that they find about sweet abundance which is the name of the la- cartoon land and so they open it up. And so without going into too much more detail, they go to the back of the basement and Jimmy climbs under these curtains and he says, oh, wow. And he opens up, they open up the curtain and he's a cartoon and they're stunned. And so they end up crawling through the window and they go to this cartoon world called Sweet Abundance. And there they they meet all their car, their tokens turn into, they said in the guidebook, if you add water, tokens will come to life size. So they, so that's another funny thing about Jamal. He's a great character. They're sitting in there. They said, "Is it we? Oh, if you was add water to the tokens, but we're in the middle of a park. I don't know how we can do it." So Jamal takes the van token and he spits on it, and he says, "It's water." And he puts it down, and it's and it grows. And then they had the other one was the the other one was a dachshund, and so they spit on that token, and he gets to be life size. And so they're scratching the dachshund and they said, oh, what's your name, boy? And in perfectly clear words, as I say, he said, they don't give dogs uh, tokens with names in the factory. Come on, don't you know? And he said, I really prefer the name Bernard because St. Bernard's, they get to be heroes. They save people. It's right up my alley. So So those are the main, the the three kids and they drive around in the van named Randy and drive around Sweet Abundance, and they meet different characters. But the main part of the story is that there is a villain named John Heartless, which I think is a great name for a villain. And he looks like a Snidely Whiplash, if you ever watched that. Right, right. The top hat and everything. And he wants to take over Sweet Abundance, and he chases them around. And finally, skipping through all the different parts of the book, at the very end, he's got them. He's cornered them. And there's just nothing left. And Lily doesn't know what to do. So she stands up and she kisses him on the cheek. And he says, no, no one's ever kissed me before. And my mean aunt raised me. And he starts to shrink like the Wizard of Oz. But he doesn't shrink all the way. He gets to be like a four or five-year-old boy. And he starts crying. And he said, my aunt, it's very mean to me. And a, an adult character in the story 
steps in and he says, it's okay, John, little Johnny, I'll take care of you. And pretty much that, then they go back and they, they end up being asked to come back again. And, you know, that there's, they're losing all the color in sweet abundance. And so they somehow get, oh, they, in that story, another character comes up that is a very big favorite. It's my grandson designed it. It's a, a robot named Trimo. Trimo, they find him in this antique store <laughs> in a box because they, they got a letter saying that, please come back. We need you. The color's disappearing from Sweet Abundance. And Trimo, they push the right button and he comes alive and he's got spring legs and he jumps all over the place. And they go back and the color is missing. So they that whole journey to find the color and also another main character is missing also. But it's a beautiful story of what happened. Oh, forgot the most, most important part. In the second book, Eddie is the, is the bully at school and he's bullying Jimmy. And he follows them into Sweet Abundance by mistake. As they go through this, into the, through the store of the antique shop, he follows them in. And what happens to Eddie in the story is really amazing. And he's really mean and he, he chases them around and a second car is actually born in that story because he chases him around in their car, little car. And uh, he, things work out and he ends up so much better. And they all end up as very close friends by the end. So nice. it's a really lovely ending. Nice. Great. What would you say, you work with middle school kids, younger kids. What other books out there are similar to these that you could point to for well, readers um, that are interested? Yeah, I wrote them down that I have used before one of them first actually the first one is an old book that is actually when i was a child i read these beverly cleary books mm. in fact she just died at 105 or something and the characters were very real in there they're no they're not these i don't know the, the, they get into scraps scrapes and so beverly cleary is a huge was a huge influence and even though they're old books i like them what did i do with this oh here so i read the book that I really liked was the recent book was uh, The Voyage of Sparrowhawk and the author is Natasha Ferrant and they go on a journey also they are in a boat and uh, they get into all kinds of scrapes and they go to these various different places and the other one is Mr. Lemoncello's Library by Chris Ravenstein and it's again it's another adventure they have this museum that's really really strange but really cool in there so those are the some of the books that are similar nice great and have you had any of your students reading the books what have they what have people said about the books okay two things one as i was reading them to my class as i was writing the first book when i got near the end you know the kids in my class they'd like to lay on this rug while i was i read stories to them he jumped up and he started saying this is going to be a movie and I'm going to be Jimmy and you're going to be Lily and you're going to be <laughs> Jamal. And they were just completely, they became the huge fans that really pushed me into getting it published and everything. And then I, I got, I hear from the kids at my school who've read them. In fact, in the second book, the second car in it named Tony, she raps. And my brother said to me, you're really not going to write, try writing raps, are you Molly? <laughs> Give it a shot. If it comes out horrible, I will, I'll take it out. So Tony does all these raps. And these in my school, these girls that loved my books and read them, um, their teacher said they were marching around the classroom 
going with my determination, I'll reach my destination. <laughs> and yeah, I, there, there's one girl that I see in school. She carries my book around with the time. Nice. Uh, yeah, I have. And I had, I actually ra ran into some parents of a, of the, uh, from the class where I read the books, the first class, and they were the parents there and I ran into them and they remembered me. I actually didn't remember them exactly, <laughs> but well, you get how many kids every single year. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> That's yeah understandable. <laughs> but I smile and say, Oh yeah. <laughs> I remembered their son and he said, he just loved your books. And she said, and she said, we credit you and your books to his love of reading. I thought, I wish I had a video that I could carry around my head. That was the most, I almost wanted to grab the mother and hug her. And I, the comments that I've gotten, I actually got a letter from a girl. I received a paper letter and it was, oh, I almost should have brought it with me. But anyway, it was, I just she she is a student at the school of where I wrote the book and I don't teach there anymore and she said you had my two brothers and she said but I she said I got lost in the story and I just love the characters and I can't wait for the next book to come out and so I I wrote back I, I found out who her mom was and I remembered and I called her and I said how in the world did she read the book she said oh no our your books at our house is a big deal. <laughs> so nice. when she read it, so I received an actual paper letter and I've actually posted it on Facebook for my friends to see. That's them. beautiful. Love that. Yeah. Kids, it's great. That's one of the things with kids that when they get into stories, they are so into it and love it. And that's one of the best things, writing, reading with kids and all that. I, absolutely. You get a group of adults and you read a little bit to them. They're like, it's a, it's <laughs> kids are always so fun. <laughs> Oh yeah, they there's no holding them back. They right. it just comes and I think that that's what I really love about them. <laughs> yeah, obviously one of the little boys thinks that your book should be a movie. What do you think, a movie or TV show for the books? I like the idea of a movie. Yeah, I, I like the idea of a movie. It's it lends itself to it. There, the description of them, and in the first book I do have illustrations. The second book I did not do illustrations. Someone said a middle grade book you really don't need them, but I can. So here is a picture oh, nice. of that's Lily and Jamal and Jimmy. And they're in the basement looking in that guidebook before they climb through the window and get into Sweet Abundance. And the, the woman who, Sylvia Masick, who did the illustrations, she it was strange because she just really liked the book and her kids liked the book. She's the illustrator. And in the book, in this picture, she put little clues on his backpack. No, there's a picture of the van somewhere on a shelf and the dachshund, the, the Bernard. And then there's a thing that says dead end. In one, in the first scene, they meet the main, one of the main character, Isidore Benefactor. He's the president of the bank. He's like the head of the whole place of sweet abundance. And they found him. And originally I put him in jail, but that's too close to Monopoly. So I called it that he was stuck in dead end. Ah. They nice. named it, and so she put the word this little sign that said "dead end" there. So nice. It's the uh, yeah, and the kids. I just love their reaction to it. I just love the reaction. So yeah, I would say a movie. Okay. See, I always had the idea. You know how in the summertime, some of the theaters show 
kids movies like every Tuesday and you could get oh. a pass. They show like 10 movies through the summer every Tuesday or oh, something like that. Afternoon. That's great. What I would love is to take my book and turn it into a serial cartoon. And then every week for those 10 weeks, they show three minutes of the whole thing. Yeah, that's what I would love to do if it was if I could figure out how to make it possible. Yeah, that I would. Yeah, that's a very I didn't know about those. I have to look for them and see if I can go see them. Yeah, yeah. I used to take my kids to them. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Molly, do you have a website for people to check out? Yes, it's mollyperryauthor.com. Mollyperryauthor.com. All right, I'll put it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have on there some just some posted just things that are on my mind. It's not necessarily, it should, I'm kind of learning about it. So yeah, they, and they can order the, they can order the book on the website. There's a, the person who did it, they wrote the word Amazon. And if you just click on the word Amazon, it takes you right to Amazon. On the, nice. buy the book. Okay, great. And what's your plans for your third book? So I'm about three quarters of the way through writing it. And the third book is wild and crazy also. They don't go to Sweet Abundance right away. Because the thing I didn't tell you about the first book is, if I did, they found the game in the first book at their father's museum. He was trying to start up a children's museum, which does get started up. And they found the game in a, in a wooden box that was locked up because it was all just packages and things. And in fact, he, so they were left alone in the museum. He had an appointment. And so they pulled it out and they played the game of Monopoly. And so it sent them to the, to the antique store. But this time it starts out with the characters, main characters of the book showing up at their house in Mayville. That's the real world. And they, the Isidore benefactor is with the little, little Johnny and Bernard at their front window, at their front door. And he said, you've got to come right away. There's very big trouble and we really need your help. And so they they get in the, they go to the museum and they said, we can't tell you now, is it her? And his brother was there also, blah, blah, blah. And so they go to the museum and they find, and they want to make sure that the game is okay at the museum. And, and there is a twin museum in a Sweet Abundance. It's a cartoon museum. It's a twin. So they came because the game disappeared from the museum in Sweet Abundance and they come to the real world to see what if the game was still there in the real world of uh, real world. And they found out that it wasn't, it was missing. And so it was horrible because they didn't know if Sweet Abundance was going to disappear. And so th the father says, we have to, oh, little Johnny crawls under the table, which normally kept the game was on display. And he, you hear him pulling, and he crawls out, and he's hold there. Uh, he's holding the game, this package, a wrapped a package with these silver silver tape, and it looks like a spider. <laughs> and he holds it up, and so some things happen. But the father goes back to his office, which normally is this little tiny office in the museum, with a beat up old desk and a, a file cabinet. And the father said, "Follow me," and everybody follows him. And they open the door and the music, the offices change. It's huge. It's beautiful. It's big. And there's a big new de desk with his old swivel chair, which he's very grateful for. They kept the old swivel chair. But on, and on the one wall is this huge painting. So they all gather around the painting. And 
it's a painting of a, a field and a mountain, and there's a little cabin at the top of the mountain, and in the air are some birds. So what I didn't tell you in the first book is they talked about how sweet abundance came into being. It was a very short part of it. It turns out that is the villain, John Hartless, had run away from his job as an artist in this company because his boss was really mean. And so he went up to his cabin where he goes to relax and he starts drawing pictures of this world of sweet abundance. And he drew it enough and says, and as if you believe in something long enough, it's going to become real. <laughs> I thought I was going to get a lot of flack from it, but everybody accepted it. <laughs> and so he opened a trap door in the cabin and he went into sweet abundance. So there's a, that, that's what the cabin is at the top of the mountain. And in the air are two new characters in the air. They said, they looked closer and they said, those two birds over there aren't really birds. And they look, they said, they look like little dragons. So they look closely and there are these two, two little dragons. And so the father opens up the package and there's another character that appears. It's actually a, a diary of a journey. And it turns out it's the grandfather of Isidore and Otto. And so they take the guidebook with them and they said, and the father said, we follow me. They go back to the room where the game was and they push this big bookcase away from the door and they open up these doors that open up like wings, whatever. And they see this hallway, this dark hallway with bricks and there's a torch stuck into the wall. And they said, this is where you're going to take your journey. <laughs> so the all the uh, the kids go into that hallway and Jamal and of course Bernard goes and the three kids and and Trimo <laughs> Trimo's in this thing I haven't talked about him and then it's, I don't know this may or may not continue but right but I had little Johnny say you know what I'm not, I'm brave he's a little boy and he runs in with them and he begins to change and get to be their age. And he's part of the team. I don't know if it's too many characters. So I don't know. What, but I like little Johnny. Anyway, so they go into this and they climb up this these steps. And they see these two little giggling faces of those two dragons. And one's green, sparkling green. Her name is Emerald. And the other one is purple, sparkling. Her name is Pear, purple Emerald. And so they go in there and they climb up and they see them at the top and they go into the store and they're in the cabin where from the first book where they had actually created the land of sweet abundance. And they go on this journey to find the games. And it's crazy because there's another, they go open the trap door again and they go down and there's railroad tracks in there. And Lily's really thrilled that she doesn't, that she doesn't have to continually Crapes around because there's a train and a an old-fashioned train shows up with the, the smoke popping out. And it's Bruno. He's the train. And he they travel on this train towards Sweet Abundance. But they go down this mountain. And that's where the real problem of the story actually comes about because it's really bizarre. But they are encountered with a rat. His name is King Poison. And he... Oh. They stop in the halfway down the mountain and they go into this house. Uh, they see this lady sitting on a porch and she asks them for cookies, but she seems very suspicious. And, but they go in the house and she actually changes into this rat, this female rat. 
and she's wearing this old baggy dress and there's a and she's trying to capture them so she said you should go into this little wire box where she had two two cats that were her kind of prisoners and but they somehow they won't they don't go in to the thing that the cats actually pop the door open and all the other people that were waiting outside the traveling people broke into the went in and she ran away and so you the next part you meet her name is of course now I'm not going to remember her name but she goes to oh no her name is Malice and actually, the word malice popped in my head before I started writing the book. I had no idea what the book was about, but there was going to be a malice. And so she goes over and meets up with, and she's terif- ter- She's scared to talk to King Poison because she left, the, the, everybody, the cats escaped and everybody escaped and she ran away. And he's furious, but then they, they go chasing them and they are chase, chasing them. And as they're going down the mountain, they... No, that when they go down the mountain, that's when they meet Malice and the whole thing. And then they escape that house and they go down the mountain and they have to stop again. It's a crazy thing, but I won't tell you about that. But up in the mountains, they see the rats. They see King Poison and they see Malice and hundreds of rats. Wow. So the whole thing about the rats are is that they said, somebody says in one part of it, they just, I wish they would just go home. And one of them said, they can't go home. Rats have no homes. They live in behind the walls and in sewers, but they have no home. And they're going to find, there's a home in Sweet Abundance, another land, a cartoon land. And the the rats want to take over Sweet Abundance. And King Poison has the games, but they're disguised as dice in his safe. That's a lot coming up, a lot going on. First of all, I've been telling everybody, I don't know, I know I have too many characters. I know I have too many characters, but everybody knows the main characters so well. So I have the dragons and then the rats and the Bruno, the steam engine. So I don't know. I guess that's part of writing the book. You have to play with it. Great. Okay. So let me ask you a couple of things about your teaching in that. Okay. Because I, with my books, am working on a study guide and I'm working on like words to know and because I want to get kids writing a bit more. So as a teacher of young people's, What's some of the problems you face getting them to read and some of the problems they have with the books and reading and and even enjoying it and all that? What do you see as some of the problems? I think the problems are, first of all, if they they need help in learning how to read, then for some of them, that's where they really get difficult and they 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 don't want to do that. And I think for, as a classroom teacher, when you read, when I read a book to them, I've read some Roald Dahl books and there's one Roald Dahl book, the short book, and it's hilarious. And I burst out laughing year after year. I burst out laughing. I can't stop laughing over these books and the kids start laughing. And so I said, oh, I'm sorry. And they said, no, it really was really funny. And or I'll be reading to them. So I'm going from another angle of reading to them instead of and then getting to the books that we read as they have to read. And I say, what do you think is going to happen now? And they have all these ideas. So that's to just get them hooked into the book, into the story. I said, one time I tried various things and I said, let's make a little short story together. So I said, in this book that I just read, his Roald Dahl is this character. So I said, let me just name some characters and I'll put them in and I'll tell you the beginning of it. Are you up for it? 
that's what I say. Are you up for it? And yeah. <laughs> and so I say, okay, is this there and this character? And I said, the problem is, what is there? Think of a better problem? Yeah, well, he could have lost his homework and is in trouble with the teacher. Yeah, let's use that one instead. <laughs> so I, and we create this story. I don't, I can't spend too much time on it, but I create a story. And then I'll say, well, let's brainstorm some, some endings. We talk about the characters, blah, blah, blah. So that's, it seems like a, a for some principles, that's not wasting my time. I should just really be teaching vocabulary and make them read the book. And, and then she's right. We should learn the vocabulary, but I, I just want them to get the idea of loving of the process of writing a book. So they understand the book. And then I read to them every day. I read to them every day. And so they, oh, the other thing about, before I get into that, as a teacher, as I read to them, an unexpected consequence, or good, that was a good consequence, happened about from my books. They started bringing in from home their books that they wrote. It could have been like two nice. pages. I thought, if I made an assignment, everybody has to write a story. <laughs> but all these books started coming from home that they were writing at home. The parents were so excited that they were doing that. If you, I think your general attitude towards the book that you're trying to teach is excited, then I think that they get into it a little more. I, repeat your question again so that I make sure. No, I'm, I was just chatting because I, I like what you do and what you said about that. One of the things, and again, whew, this is a touchy subject because first of all, I think our teachers are extremely undervalued and not admired. I have said, for quite a while that I have the solution to fix everything in our country. And what we do is we take the pay for the politicians and the pay for the teachers and switch them. And oh my in God, yes. 20 years, the kids going through a system with highly paid teachers would have all the answers to everything. And we wouldn't be listening to politicians that are underpaid and it would tell solve our problems. And having them tell us how to teach too. Is right. And what you said about the principal thinking you should teach them grammar, teach them vocabulary, teach them spelling. But to what end? What's the point? If the kids don't know how to use the spelling and use the grammar to write stories or tell stories or read and understand what they're reading, what's the point in learning all of that? Because spelling, my, my cousin doesn't spell great. And he says, why do I have to? I put everything on my phone. It tells me what I spelled wrong. So right. if you're learning spelling in a vacuum, no wonder they don't care and want to learn. But if they see, oh, I'm writing stories and these stories are exciting and people are reading them, enjoying them. And I read stories. It, it all feeds on itself. That's my thoughts and opinions. Absolutely. It really does feed on itself. Absolutely. I saw the, the, this teacher, this really super teacher that they gave us, came to talk to us. And she told us about a thing that she did with spelling. And I loved it. What she does is she said she has her spelling list from the book and she said, but from their stories that they write, she said, she finds books, words that are misspelled all the time, said, <laughs> and she said, she adds them to their individual. She, so you have the 10 words and then these words that she finds in their writing that are misspelled, she adds them to individuals spelling tests. I thought, how do you, how do they do it? So what she did was she gave the spelling test and then everybody gets in pairs at the end for the last three. 
and they swap this card where she keeps an index card of all the words that they misspell. And if I had your list and you had mine, I would give you those three three words from their card of all these spelling words that they words that they misspelled in their work. And uh, and then if they spell them right, I call I call them and I crossed off the things on their card. They said yes, I'm going to get everything off of my card. I said yes, I bet you will. And so <clears throat> it it individualizes their spelling. But you're right. You need to know how to spell the words. But if there's a motivation to do it, it's it's very hard. And I you do it. And I had this one teacher. She was very smug. She said to me. How is it that your the kids' spelling scores on the tests are so high? So they misspell them first, and then they spell them right for a test. She was just very annoyed. She left. <laughs> she didn't. Wow. She, that's impossible. I said I got it from a teacher, a top teacher. She told me how to do it. But I don't know. I sometimes it's the way you teach the story. You have those readers with the short stories. Uh, it encourages love of reading and writing. I. My first year of teaching, I had this principal who was, yes, they needed a better principal. <laughs> so she comes in to look at me, to observe me, but she just really wants to see my lesson plan. And I said, when I saw her, I said, oh, you got to come to see my reading group. This is because there was three groups and I had my top group in front of me when she walked in and I wasn't looking at her. I thought that she was following the group. I said, oh, you wrote this little short story in the reader. I said, everybody, did you come up with your own ending? A changed ending to the story? And they were all excited because these kids were like super brilliant kids. And they were reading some of their own endings to the story that were in the book. So I dismissed them. And then I went over to her and she was just looking through my plan book. And I said, did you like the lesson? She said, your lesson plans need to be in more detail. These are very scattered. I wanted to just say, is that what you got out of this visit? <laughs> and right there, I love that you do that. And I, I think that's part of the problem is we're so focused on the paper of what Common Core says we should do. Oh, yeah. And, and the kids I, yeah. aren't really learning. And we've gotten, I know a lot of schools will spend a whole week preparing the kids for Common Core. So all they're learning is how to take the Common Core test. They're not learning and oh, oh, telling, yeah. there's so you. many things in telling a story, like reading the stories, like what you did. I think some exercises I've suggested and some people were like surprised is the kids all went and saw the new Harry Potter movie or the new Star Wars or the new cartoon that's out from Disney, whatever it happens to be. So the following, if, they, if you see it in the classroom or they're all talking about, it's like, why don't we write fan fiction? Why don't we write our own story with those characters? What happens next? Oh, that's a great idea. And, and then they're, because they're interested, who cares? Because then you can introduce some spellings. You know what? This is on our spelling list. It You could use that word here. And when they see it, it clicks so much because I noticed with a lot of early write, writers, adults, in the, not just kids, they read all these craft books. They read all this, how to do this, that, and the other thing. But they haven't written anything, so it doesn't click. Oh, I know. That, that's okay. So we're teaching spelling, we're teaching grammar, but we don't teach them how to write a story. So none of that clicks. And if we wrote, or what you said, hey, let's stop here. Why don't you write how this story would end? Yes. Yeah. And, and you could do, and then you could take what they wrote and do the grammar. You could do the spelling from that and that they're more that, engaged. That comes later. First, they've got to be psyched. If they yes. don't like that story, I'll say, yeah, now you got a great story, but we, we have to do have to fix up the spelling. So do you want me to circle the words and so you fix it up? 
do you want me to do that? <laughs> oh, yeah. If I had said, Cir there are circled words, fix them. It's a whole different, yeah. tell this story. This is, I didn't plan on telling this, but <laughs> I was teaching at this school and this little boy had run out of his, uh, ran away from, out of the building. He hated school. And so they pulled him out of that school and I don't, they came to our the school where I was teaching and the principal stuck him in my room. She said, I'm giving him to you. <laughs> I said, okay. So he came up to my desk. The kids were working. He was, and so I said to him, would you, I just would like you to write me a little story. I didn't know anything about him. So he said, oh, I said, but make it funny or exciting or something. I got him all prepped up for it. And he wrote this story. It had to be maybe 50 words. And he came up and he pointed down on my desk and I looked at it and the words were all mushed together. There, 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 it was un, unreadable, but I saw the little word the in the middle of it. And so I came up with this. I said, Come here. I said, I said, I feel cheated. He said, what? I said, I feel cheated. I said, you wrote a story. I don't get to hear the story. And he said, why? I said, I can't read it. And he looked and he said, there's the. I said, I know, I saw the. I said, but now I don't get to read your story. And he said, I could rewrite it for you. I said, would you? <laughs> and he sat down and he, now, that's A. Take B. He calls up a kid. This story is a mess. I can't read a word of it except that word the. Redo it. And right. the kid does this. No, I'm not. And he run out of the building. He voluntarily sat there. I said, if you put your finger between each word, I'll be able to see it better. Because that's what we teach. And the story was a nothing story, but I read it and I was excited. I was excited about it. And he and I did very well. That was many years ago. I ran into his sister <clears throat> and I said, How is he doing? He said, Oh, he's happily married. He has two little babe, two little kids, and he is part owner in the gas station where he works. And I said, fantastic. So I'm not saying he was this genius, but he probably was very good with his hands. And But he found a home in my class that he was safe. He wasn't going to run away. I wasn't going to beat him up. And that's part of what you're saying. It's got to be an atmosphere where you're encouraged to do things. And I once taught haiku and I was being observed by this principal and because I uh, the new job possibility. And I had all these people in the back and I had this haiku lesson, which is my favorite, uh, one of my favorite lessons. And I had this packet with all these haiku that I had found. So I told him about the history of the haiku that it was a third grade class. And I said, I said, this describes a mountain and then the fish jumps in the water. at the end. So I said, it tells a little story. I said, we're going to do haiku, but we're not going to follow how many we're not going to count how many sounds or anything. We're just going to enjoy the haiku. When you get to high school, you're going to have to count the sounds. Right. right. So I did, I wrote down a baseball haiku that from another class that had written. It wasn't the, it wasn't the one that was from the haiku book. And at the plate, holding the bat, bam, home run, whatever. And of course, they understood that they could picture it. And so then I said, but let's read some of the other ones. And we went around and. I said, we don't have a lot of time. So just somebody, we'll take four people, volunteer, look through the thing, who wants to read? So they read them. And so I said, at the back is this page blank with these lines on it. I said, see if you could write a haiku. What could we write a haiku about? And they said, baseball. 
And then they said, summer vacation, all these different things, going to camp, Thanksgiving. I said, yeah, go for it. Try something. So this is what I tell other teachers that are new. I said, I walked off the stage. I let them be on the stage. So I walked off to the side and I said, okay, who's willing to, I said, and I said, let's, I turned to the principals and everything. I said, now we don't want to criticize. (laughs) We're just going to listen. Yes. (laughs) I said, because they're brave to do this, to come up in front. So they came up and they were okay. They did it. And we all, we were were all very happy with them. And then like a gift from heaven, this boy said, can I write some at home and bring them in? I said, let me think, should you write some at home and bring them in? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so we wrote all these haiku and we walked out and my principal said, you're hired. (laughs) (laughs) Because I stepped off the stage. It became theirs. It was them. I wasn't grading them at the time. And it, and so my, the one lady, no, it wasn't her. It was this woman I shared the classroom with. She said, Molly, what you do is you love them into submission. (laughs) And I do. I love the kids and I don't have, I, that's, and that's part of teaching, but it's also, I love the stories and I, and I, and I, and I, I did play a trick on that boy with the thing, but I I didn't do it with being mean. But but you're right. Like when you told the principal, we're not criticizing because in the younger grades, we need to encourage them in writing and their stories because that'll get them excited. And then they'll read. And once you read, your spelling and grammar becomes easier and better. But we have it so backwards in that the only time we ask them to write something is, what did you do this summer? That's the only thing we ask. And then we say- here, read this book. We know it's dry and you'll hate it, but you have to read it because we said so. Okay, let's do spelling. And there are all this stuff in it. It gets them like, who cares? By the time they're in eighth, ninth grade, they're like, I am so tired of spelling. But if we just worried about the story and the reading in the younger grades, then you when they're a like- a great teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told that. And I do love to teach and work with kids a lot. I always have, even when I was younger, it's just, <laughs> honestly, I don't think I could have handled all the politics and the stuff. I would have been one of the teachers driven out by all the administration. Oh, I, I could not go in back into the classroom because every minute is scheduled for me. I can't tell my stories. I'm a storyteller. If I, I would say one time I said this about the word said to this one little group or one class. I said, I hate the word said. I said, but my son, David, he's the one helped me with the word said. It looked like I lost my mind. And I said to them, he I said he had written a story for school and he asked me to look at it and he had misspelled S-E-D. I said, which is how he should spell said. But <laughs> so I said, I don't know how you're gonna read I, I really wasn't being tricky. I just was I don't know how I can I teach kids how to spell said. And he got up off the table. He said, let's try this. And he took a step S A. I, and he was stepping with each letter. I said, do that again. And so I said, okay, fix your words, fix the word set in the paper. And so I went to school and I said, I got this great idea from my son, how to spell the word set. What's his name? They want to know everything about you. His name is David. And I said, get out of your seat. I said, let's try what he did. I told him the story and they were all walking around. S-A-I-D. I said, so I shouldn't have the word misspelled said in our, 
And I know that there would be teachers who say, I wasted all this teaching time playing around with step stomping around the room. But you know what? Fun is good. <laughs> That's and, my motto, by the way. Fun is it, good. <laughs> exactly. And they learn through that better. And I think sometimes hitting them with, here's a list of 10 spelling words for the week, go home, memorize it, and the spelling test at the end of the week, and then 10 more next week. So many kids, my, my stepson was bad at math. And he had a hard time with math. And working with him, what we discovered was that he would work on a lesson and work on learning a principle and a topic. But then when he went to the next one, he forgot all of that. And so it wasn't connecting and it made the next one harder. And yeah, great. Some kids thrive in that. I'm going to sit down and memorize 10 words and get them right next week and 10 more. And other kids are just like, my brain's turning to mush. But if you wrote stories and told stories and they use those words, they would, so many more of them would then get it. And there's just, we've been learning that kids learn in different ways and work in different ways. And it's, is it more important for them to do 10 words a week and forget all of them and never be able to spell hardly any of them correctly? Or is it better to learn five or six that they use and they know how to spell really good and can always spell it? It's like my kids, when they went to school, instead of learning in chemistry, all the the elements on the table, because we had to do that. We had to try and memorize them and where they were and the a two-letter oh, combination man. and memorize that. Instead, they were put in the groups of five and they got assigned two elements each and they had to research it. Who discovered it? Oh, Which my was God. It discovered? And what led to that? And how does it work with other elements? And so they became experts at just two elements. And then they had to give a presentation, which got them in front of kids talking. And so they all heard about all the elements, but they only really worked with two. And there were parents arguing that. Now my kid doesn't know all of them. Like they know them as well as they would have, but they know two of them like intimately. And it was, right. and, they, was, and if they needed to know another one, they know how to research it and find yeah, out. Yes, we don't need <laughs> to teach them how to memorize these, how to look it up, research it, work with other people, how to give presentations, and the rest of it comes. It and work with other people. That's huge. very important. Nowadays, it's big. They teach classes on it. It's like, why teach oh, classes? Yeah. Just put them in the groups. They learn how to do it. That's right. That, yeah, that's yeah. The, I love that. I love that style of learning. In fact, when I was taught my third grade class, we learned about Native Americans and there was a map of all these different tribes. And so I broke the kids up into five groups. And this is after talking a lot about their culture and food and blah, blah, blah. And I said, we're never going to learn about all of them. It's impossible. I'm doing exactly what you're talking about. So I said, here, I'm going to break you up in groups of five. And I said, and I said, I'm not sure how to do this. Should I, should you pick a tribe? I said, I don't want everybody to pick the same one because then you can get together. You can make pictures of their homes and oh my God, they went crazy. But the, as it turns out, we've picked five different tribes and I gave them time in class to, and I think I gave them an outline of food, this, what to do. And then they made a presentation of it and they loved it. They loved it. And I just went around from, group to group and we, and then they made their presentations and i would i learned so much about native americans that about these different groups some things about how certain things that the certain tribes do 
Well, they they actually got passed along through so some of the things from maybe the north or the south. Right. They got pa- passed along and see like the totem poles. They were, I think, the north first, and then they finally they found them in Florida. So the, the, those things, who knew? I didn't know, but but that's really learning some interesting stuff right. about it. And the one year I did that, and there was a mother that came in to videotape their presentation because they've been working so hard on it. That's when you get worried. How much were you involved in this? But anyway. yes. Yeah. But anyway, but no, the more involvement, the more you're off the stage, the talking head, because I remember taking a class in college and the ta- the teachers talked about that. He said, when you just stand there and talk to them, usually only one third hears anything you said. That n- I never forgot that. And your enthusiasm you should be in the class. No, well, you shouldn't be in the classroom because they wouldn't let you. <laughs> it'll kill me. But no, I'm working on some presentations to give the classes so I could come in as a visiting author and do things with storytelling with video game. That's video game. Storytelling is where I'm really pushing some things because they can relate to that. It's stories, it's video games. You can do it now, that type of thing. And that's gets them more excited about what story is, even though it's told in a different way in a video game, but that's where they're at. That's what their interest is. So instead of fighting it, use it. Yes. That's the difference. That's the way that teaching should be. You shouldn't be. I walk down my, in my school and there's these teachers sitting at their desk and they're pointing to things and then the kids are working. And I'm thinking, I'm falling asleep just walking, seeing you sitting at the desk. Right. It's not the 1800s anymore. (laughs) But you'd be surprised all up and down the hall, people sitting. And then you see one, I saw there's one teacher I love to watch. She's pacing around up and down and the kids are all wound up and excited. And I, that's, that's a teacher. <laughs> Not that you have to be that way all the time, but, and, and just they, you need to get them participating and doing and creating. And, yeah. And we we got to, this is a whole nother topic. And I know we got to get going here, but yeah. we got to watch the, we're so concerned about the grading system and who's getting A's and B's that we only focus on those numbers and we have to quantify it that we're missing what the kids may actually be learning and what's useful and helpful and making them people. I, I know there's some new, the kids, the high school my kids went to, they had different ways of grading whether kids were passing or not and what their grades were. And I like the system. I don't think it's perfect yet. I just think we need to discuss, open our eyes and talk about it more rather than this is the way it's always been. Let's keep doing it. Also, I find that Who's creating all this stuff? I don't know if they're in the classroom, creating textbooks or creating curriculum. I don't know if they're in the classroom, if they have any. And so how can they even begin to understand things that you can't write about in a book? The way that you care about them, the way that you, your personal enthusiasm. I don't think that is addressed, but the teachers who have it and do it, the kids come back to visit. They come back to visit me (laughs) and I'm talking about that. that's, that's it. We have such an opportunity. You have those kids together. You don't know what the heck's going on at home and fear of the world blowing up, going to heck right. and all that stuff. So you have a million different things going on. And for you to just tell them to study for this spelling test, that's the least of their issues. Right. We should yeah. start a 
campaign. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be in touch a little bit more. I'll let you know when the episode goes live and I'm sure being a close teacher and stuff, I might shoot you some emails and have thoughts and discussion. That'd be awesome. You know, we'll I'd be, love we'll that. Get Abby and sit down for coffee one morning or something. Oh, Abby. She's a character. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to see her at the end of the month at the writer's conference over at the library. Oh, I'm going to be there. Oh, I'll see you there. On the 25th? Yeah, yeah. I'll be there. Yeah, I'm gonna, I have to leave a little bit early, but I'll be there for most of it. Great. Oh, yeah, I'm, there's an author I've been talking to I want to meet. So, yeah, it'll be a fun day. Okay. So, Molly, before we go real quick, since we've been talking about writing and your stories and your books, do you have any advice you'd give out there to parents of their kids to encourage them to write or anything like that? Or young kids that are writing? If just off the top of my head, if you if you can read a simple story with them, sit down, and then when the story's done, we'll say, Billy and Johnny in that story, maybe we can make an adventure with them. And you write what their ideas are. And and then say, okay, if they're old enough, read your story. You become the just the writer, the script, scribe, right. whatever. And depending on that, but like like with the haiku, I'll say, why don't you write one? And I, that day, I had the kids a hard time getting the kids to stop, coming up with more, running to the front, waiting to write another one. And uh, finally, my time was up. They were really, I said, well, if you want to go home and your teacher will listen to them. Nice. And they were psyched. And that's what we're looking for. Yeah. If you, you'll get them to write if you appreciate their efforts, maybe. In the end, say, yeah, I love this. We you really got a great story now, but now here's the part that we all have to do. So what do you think that would be? I'm not going to, we have to write it in our neatest writing. Yeah, we're going to have to do that. But before we do that, we have to do stuff. Here's if I, as a, I don't like to talk as an author particularly, but when I was in school and when I have to write things, what do we do? It? I have to fix what's, what's mistakes and I have to read it again. And one of the others, and I said, and when you write your stories, because my kids were, writing stories for me at home and bringing them, they typically would repeat the same thing over and over and over again. So I said, can I give you one hint? I said, sometimes I, when I write it, I do this. When I write a story, I'll write it. And then I find myself writing the same thing over and over. So would you mind if I like circled that paragraph and said, you just, you know, you're doing that. And they said, yeah. I said, then you don't, because then it won't, because they say my story's five pages long. My story's 10 pages long. I said, it doesn't have to, it doesn't, it's not, but I'd rather have it one page long or two pages long, but you're not repeating because you have a good story. We just want to make it even better. So that's, and they let me circle them, but I have their permission. It's when you get back a thing from a teacher, it's all red and all that. You want to say. <laughs> yeah. And I love that. You just said that you have their permission. You get the kids involved. Empowered. They want to get better. They want to learn. They want to know they really do. But again, when we're just, Hitting them and all that turns them off. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. All right. Yeah, I make a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Molly. It's been wonderful talking to you. I wish you very much luck on your books and I can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks. Okay. I'll see you soon. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Right, and I'll let you know when this goes live. Oh yeah, please. Hi, if you enjoyed this episode of Discovered Wordsmiths, please support the author. Go to their website, go to Amazon, look them up, get the book. And if you click on the link that I have in the show notes, you'll also help support the podcast so I can keep the hosting and all the software I use and uh, keep it running for, to help more authors. 
when I am recording this, we've got over 100 episodes, lots of authors. Go to the website, discoveredwordsmiths.com. Check it out. There's a lot of great authors, probably in some genre that you love. See what they have. Check out their books. That's what the point of the podcast is for. So people can discover new authors, find some new books they love, support the authors so they can continue writing. So please support them. And if you do like the podcast, if you've been thinking of podcasting or you're a writer, I've got some links also at the website. Click on those if you're interested in any of the software or services that I talk about. Everything that I have there is something I use, so I've got an affiliate link. Again, it's a little bit, if everyone clicked on those, if they were going to get it anyway, it helps keep the podcast going. So let's all help each other out, discover more authors to read. Thank you for listening to Discovered Wordsmiths. Come back next week and listen to another author discuss the road they've traveled and maybe sometime in the near future, it might be you.